Welcome to the Explorer's Roundtable, where intrepid voyagers share tales of discovery and adventure and engage with scholars in discussions relevant to the science, history and literature of exploration. Here's your host for the evening, Jonathan Hal Reynolds. In 1914, Irish-born explorer Sir Ernest Shackleton was looking for a crew of men to join his expedition to attempt the first land crossing of Antarctica. As legend has it, he is reported to have put out an advertisement in the London Times which read, Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. The response was overwhelming, and it seemed every man in Great Britain wanted to join Shackleton's voyage. A final list of 27 shipmates were recruited, 28 including Shackleton, and they set sail aboard the now-famous ship Endurance, named after the Shackleton family motto, By Endurance We Conquer. Though they were not destined to achieve their goal, the incredible journey they endured over the following 500 days is considered by many to be the most successful survival story of all time. In December of 2014, I went on an expedition to Antarctica to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Endurance Voyage. One of my shipmates was Jonathan Shackleton, Ernest's cousin, and it was a privilege to share time and conversation with him during the expedition and even camp out on the ice. When I recently reached out to him to let him and the Shackleton family know I was going to be recording this episode, I inquired if they had any Shackleton experts in mind that they might endorse as a guest for the show. And they connected me with Kevin Kinney, who is a director of the Shackleton Museum in Ireland and one of the organizers of the Shackleton Autumn School. Kevin, thank you for joining us at the roundtable tonight. Good to see you. What first sparked your interest in Sir Ernest Shackleton and how has that interest continued to be part of your life all these years later? To give you a little bit of background, I grew up and lived about 20 miles, 15 miles less from where Shackleton was born. And my parents were from around the area also. So in my early teens, when, you know, I was reading the adventure stories and, you know, um, fiction and whatever else, I came across Shackleton and Scott and Amundsen. And I would have said to my mother, I mean, we would have, Shackletons were educators originally. Uh, They came to the county that I'm from in the 1700s. Um, Quakers originally also. So I would have been aware of that and I would have been aware and Shackleton trucks with Shackleton written on the side of them, milling trucks for, you know, to do with bringing stuff to mills because they ran flour mills would have passed by. So the name would have been familiar. And then I, I, somebody, somebody said to me, you know, um, uh, you should sort of look at, look at, see if you can pick up a secondhand book. Um, And I bought a secondhand, I happened to just, not to do with Shackleton, this wasn't. I bought a secondhand Treasure Island, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, in a bookshop in uh, in Dublin. And there was a postcard as a page marker. And when I read it, I saw it was from Ernest Shackleton to Jacob's Biscuits. Now, you may not be familiar with Jacob's. Jacob's would be a big biscuit maker in Ireland and the UK. Um, and again, a Quaker family. Um, and the... So the postcard was thanking them for supplying biscuits on his um, 1907-1909 Nimrod expedition. And what interested me was there was no stamp on the postcard. So, and when I looked at the book and looked back through it, it was a secondhand book, 
uh, it was owned by the Shackleton family in um, in one of their houses in, in Kildare. I mean, they were, as I say, they had, there was lots of branches of the family. So one branch owned this book. Uh, they obviously put it in for sale, just as a job lot in a secondhand bookshop. My theory is probably through Quaker family connections, um, Shackleton gave one of them the postcard and said, just pass it to one of the Jacobs when, when you meet them. Um, so, and, and that just, I, I brought the postcard to my mother. I said, hey, look, look who this is from. This is, and, and she said, oh yeah, he was one of those mad explorers from South Kildare. Oh, I don't know what he did. And really pre, pre-Caroline Alexander, pre the late 1990s, Shackleton was very little known. As, as I say, I I'm, I'm live close to where he was born and spent his childhood. Um, and the house he was born in is still there. And the Shackleton name is still quite common in, in, in that area. So in the local town, there was um, an initiative to set up a heritage centre. They wanted to connect it around some character who would sort of um, be a sort of an anchor character for this heritage centre. Um, and of course, Shackleton just fell out of the woodwork. And I got involved in that from, from then on. That was 2001. We started the Shackleton Autumn School um, and we've run it annually since. And we have, um, we have a museum to Shackleton. Um, and actually, we have in the last two years, we've got a, a really a big push from our local council and uh, some grant funding to go and develop it into a fully fledged Shackleton Museum. That's exciting. Can you tell us about any new relics or displays that will be part of or in connection to the museum? So in 2015, the the cabin from the quest, the cabin in which Ernest Shackleton died on the 5th of January, 1922, the owner of that cabin, that cabin still existed in front, in above the Arctic Circle on a farm above the Arctic Circle in Norway. And the person who owned it through the Shackleton School got connected to us. And um, the Shackleton School, by the way, it's not a school, as, as, as you might, it, it's, a, it's a weekend event about human endeavour and Shackleton and exploration and, and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, something that will probably interest your listeners. Um, but uh, he donated the cabin uh, to us. So we now have where Ernest Shackleton was born, where he spent his childhood, and we have the cabin in which he died. Can you give our listeners an overview of the 500-day expedition? What put these men in such a dire situation, and how did they end up dealing with it and ultimately coming out of it? So the first thing is I need to I need to mention um, th- this expedition was the Imperial Transantarctic Expedition. Um, the pole having been reached by a Munsden, and then Scott, who, who didn't make the return journey successfully, and... Uh, Shackleton saw the last big thing to be done in Antarctica was to cross Antarctica from coast to coast. So there were two ships involved. There was the Aurora, which was going to the Ross Sea area of Antarctica, um, and then the Endurance, which was going to the Weddell Sea. The Weddell Sea would be south of South America. The Ross Sea is south of sort of New Zealand. Uh, And the idea was to cross from the Endurance ship, from where it would hit Antarctica south of South America, to cross the continent from there, right across via the South Pole, pick up depots that would be laid by the crew of the Aurora and come down to where the Aurora was, who would who would take them back. And I'm not going to talk about the Aurora anymore because that's, that's a full story. So Endurance departed London, 
at the very start of August 1914. Now, again, huge amount of organization, but Shackleton was just a bundle of energy, a, a, an ability to relate to people so well. He had got financing from, you know, um, uh, sort of, uh, you know, Scottish industrialists who knew how to manage their money and weren't going to speculate. Um, but he, he got financing from them. He got financing from people who just bought into him and saw here, here is a person with just, you know, energy, a vision, um, and just, a, you know, a, it's just a nice, a good person, a good person. And it's worth mentioning to our listeners that in addition to James Card, the major donor, J.M. Barry, the author of Peter Pan and good friend of Scott's, was also a financial contributor, as well as Cadbury, the chocolate maker, and Lord Ivy, the head of the Guinness family of Ireland's famous Guinness beer. They were all donors. And in fact, the current Lord Ivy, I remember speaking to him at one stage about, about this, and uh, the Guinness family, and he was saying, well, you know, in those days, I mean, if you think of uh, the Bill Gateses and the, um, the, the, the different, the ones who had made their money and they were looking to you know, in the, um, what's his name? Uh, Elon Musk. I mean, Elon Musk is doing it now. He's, he's participating in, in trying to, you know, get to, get to the planets. Uh, so similarly, they were, they were willing to invest in something that was, you know, had new materials, new technologies, was going to the newest continent. To, to, and, and there was a certain amount as well of, and definitely Shackleton added to that because you had this person who, was a bundle of energy who was madly enthusiastic, who arrived before you and who you felt was, no matter what is going to come out of this character, it's going to be interesting, you know? He, he departed London the very start of August 1914. Now, that will ring bells with anyone here because the 4th of August 1914 was when the mobilisation of the, the British army occurred as they entered uh, World War I after the invasion of Belgium by Germany. So people will say Shacklin was lucky. Uh, if you track back through his life, he wasn't. And certainly if you're organizing an expedition and if the day you're leaving is on the precipice of World War I, uh, I don't think you can call that luck. Um, so he went ashore south of England. They telegraphed the Admiralty. Again, he got his crew together and said, what do, what do we want to do? And this was the consensus type decision making that Shackleton uh, uh, liked to operate with. Uh, and the, the crew's, the opinion was, we're, it's our duty to serve in the war, to offer our services. So we'll offer the ships and the stores to the war effort. But again, Shackleton's turn on that was, offer the ships and stores, but ask that we be allowed to remain as a unit. And I think that says all about him. He had, he had built the team he trusted most. He felt they could work well together, and that's what he wanted to do. Um, he telegraphed the Admiralty who contacted and telegraphed back. It happened to be Winston Churchill, who was the first sea lord. He said, proceed. And again, um, that gives an idea. World War I will be over by Christmas. The, the old line, it's a skirmish. Um, let's you continue with what you're doing. It's also interesting that in doing that, from then on, Shackleton took, there's a really interesting, I think, parallel study to be done about a group of men, it happened to be men in this case, a group of men who in one case went south, were isolated from the world by and large, and similar groups who went to continental Europe, fought in trenches, were killed, were in bloodbaths, were in horrific conditions. There's an interesting parallel about, you know, it's almost a case study of two separate groups who went very separate ways. 
Um, but from there, the endurance sailed on down to call to Buenos Aires. Shackleton actually had some arrangements to complete, and he went by conventional steamer transport, uh, met endurance at Buenos Aires. They left Buenos Aires um, heading for South Georgia, which is um, it's a British island uh, on the periphery of the Antarctic. It's, 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 it's within the Antarctic Circle, um, but it was Norwegian whaling stations uh, operating there. And um, but I suppose the interesting little piece is three days out of Buenos Aires, um, a stowaway emerged, Percy Blackborough, the stowaway emerged. And again, an interesting one as to how Shackleton really treated him, looked after him, developed him. And two generations later, um, Percy Blackborough's um, grandchildren would say, we always have Encyclopedia Britannica in our house because Ernest Shackleton insisted my grandfather read Encyclopedia Britannica, develop himself, continue to, to, you know, he can constantly look to better himself. Mm. And that's a trait inherited two generations later, which I think is, is a really powerful thing. When you think of the precarious life of a stowaway, getting on board and you end up on board endurance. I mean, what a, what a story. Mm. Um, down to South Georgia, left South Georgia, um, early December, 1914, into the Weddell Sea, but they encountered ice quite quickly. And really, by February 1915, endurance was frozen into the ice. We have to remember, depending on where you are in the world, um, the, the, you know, February um, onwards is the beginning of the polar autumn, the polar winter in Antarctica. Um, so really, the ship was frozen in, 24-hour darkness sort of arrived. Um, but again, there was a routine kept going all the time. The dogs were exercised, scientific measurements, geographic magnetism. These were all part of the reasons for an expedition in, in, to this extremity of the world. Um, but they lived on board ship. But then slowly, slowly, the ice, uh, they thought, you know, if they got through the polar winter, the spring and summer, the ice would break up again. They never actually reached the polar continent. They were within about 70 miles of it, but they couldn't get there. They were just frozen in this block of ice, which, I mean, you, you know, you really have to probably, without going into map detail, but um, this uh, Weddell Sea is a huge bite out of Antarctica, and there's a clockwise, there was a theory that there was a clockwise current around it. So really, that clockwise current dragged the ice in a clockwise direction. By September uh, 1915, the ice pressure was mounting off endur on endurance. We'll talk about endurance later. It was a very strong ship. But there was tons of ice stacking up, and it really was warped and wrenched apart. Uh, they abandoned ship. Uh, abandoned ship about you know the, the the towards the end of October 1915, the ship had 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 started to nosedive, and uh, was just being ripped apart. Um, so Shackleton issued the order: abandon ship. Again, what do you do when you've got 27 others? You're in Antarctica. Your ship is wrecked. And no one knows where you are. And you don't know. He didn't know. They didn't know the progress of World War I, but the, the, the outside world, nobody was going to come looking for them. Um, what do you do? You get your men on the ice and you say, the shipping stores are gone. We're going home. That's what you say, if you're Shackleton. Um, November, a month later, the ship actually disappeared through the ice. The ice closed over it. And you had this surreal moment where there was, and I think it's, you know, it's written about in some of the accounts, you certainly pick up the impression that there was no evidence that an outside world existed. 
Um, they lived on on camps in the ice again the dump camp ocean camp patience camp patience camp being um put the shackleton said put the boot of action into the stirrup of patience so we're drifting clockwise this ice will drift out of the weddell sea we have the lifeboats with us we've taken whatever stores we can uh, off uh, endurance and you know we're going home we, we, we've we've we're keeping where you know Frank Hurley is taking photographs, and uh, they're on glass plate ne- glass plate negatives. The crew are saying, "Why are we dragging these delicate glass plates around with us?" And Shackleton said, "When we get home, no one's going to believe us. This is our evidence." That continued on uh, into 1916, uh, and April 1916, the ice had actually drifted out towards the the periphery of the the Weddell Sea. It was rotting. It was you know, it was melting um, and they took to the lifeboats, the three lifeboats they had with them. They made a horrendous sort of six, seven day journey to this bleak rock on the on the very edge of Antarctica, Elephant Island. Uh, polar winter was coming. Shackleton thought I have sort of, there's a two week window. Uh, I'm going to take the biggest lifeboat to 22 foot James Caird. I'm going to pick five others who I know can sail a boat. His reasons, the different reasons he picked elements of the crew are really quite interesting, but he picked Optimus. He picked great sailors, great navigator. He also picked the ones that might cause trouble if they were left behind with Frank Wilde uh, on Elephant Island. And Frank Wilde, again, another an amazing character uh, who took command of Elephant Island. But Shacklin leading from the front, they departed Elephant Island. It happens to be, for any of your listeners, because it's, it's interesting, again, Shackleton and Ireland, uh, it was Easter Monday, 1916, uh, the 24th of April, 1916. Now, Easter Monday, 1916 was the day of the Irish Revolution. <laughs> okay, so it's 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 really fascinating how you have an Irish person in a different part of the world fighting a different battle. It's also interesting that the crew of the James Caird, there were six on it, three of them were Irish, which is statistically quite interesting. But But again, they were optimists. They were do your job keep the spirits up type people, and very good sailors. Um, they crossed 800 miles of the roughest oceans in the world and managed to, Frank Worsley navigated them with two or three sun sightings. Uh, and this is sailing about 24 hours a day for, for 16 days. They reached this pinprick on the, in the South Atlantic called South Georgia again. Again, they landed in South Georgia, recuperated, then they had to cross the island to the whaling station, uh, which they did. Tumbling into the whaling station, the manager who they had met 16, 17 months previously didn't recognise them, just broke down in tears when he realised this is Shackleton. The Norwegians, they went around, they went around to pick up the James Caird, the lifeboat that they had used, and the Norwegians insisted that no one could make that journey in a boat like that. And they manhandled the boat onto their ship and brought it back to the whaling station. And again, to your listeners, that boat still exists. It exists in Dulwich College. If anyone is in London, it's definitely worth, the real thing is there. Um, they, uh, and the, the reaction of most people when they go to see it is hugely emotional. How did six people travel? How did they, in this 22 foot boats, deal with sort of 60 foot waves, deal with everything Cape Horn can throw at you and survived? Um, and then just four rescue attempts beginning in um, May 
1916, ending on the 30th of August 1916, when the Chilean ship, the Elcho, with Shackleton, Tom Crean, Worsley, and a, 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 again, a fantastic commander, uh, Pardo and his crew, arrived off Elephant Island. Um, the 22 who had been eking out a survival there couldn't believe it when this ship came around into sight, couldn't doubly believe it when the boat was lowered, rowed in, Shackleton counting them down as they ran down, shouting to Frank Wilde, are you all okay? And Frank Wilde replying, we're all okay. At that stage, Shackleton had counted 22. He, sent to, he said to uh, Tom Crean or Frank Worsley, they're all alive. If any one of them had died, I would have felt a murderer. So they were shipped back out of there, um, met with great receptions in, in Chile. At one stage, he spoke to 30,000 people um, in, in, in a, just a grouping. Um, and then the little piece I want to say that is often forgotten, uh, because when people count Shackleton's voyages to Antarctica, they count the Discovery, they count Nimrod, they count Endurance, and they count Quest. But there was one more time he crossed the Antarctic Circle, and that was he then, Aurora, the ship which I said I wouldn't talk about, but I'm going to mention it just once more. Aurora had had uh, not as dramatic a, an experience as endurance, but but something sort of similar. It was still intact. It had found its way back to New Zealand, but there were still people left down from that Ross Sea Party to be retrieved. So Shackleton had to then, having come out of the endurance story, he had to go back via the States, I think, actually, to New Zealand, where he met the Aurora, where he went back down again, crossed the Arctic, the Antarctic Circle once more to collect the people who had been left around the Ross Sea when the Aurora had got blown out in a gale uh, and brought them all back. Can you tell us more about the ship, Endurance? Anything about the structure or layout of the ship that might be of intrigue? Okay, yeah, yeah just a, a few points. It was quite a new ship. It was built around 1912 in a Norwegian shipyard, which was renowned for building, you know, the Norwegians were master shipbuilders. They knew how to build ships that could deal with ice. Um, and so it was it was built there. Uniquely, actually, the, the guy who ran the shipyard, he insisted that everyone working there had experience of sailing ships and working on ships, as well as being craftsmen. Um, built with Norwegian, with oak, with uh, Greenheart, which is a really strong, heavy timber, um, and I think spruce or fir as well. Um, the bow was sort of steel, iron sheeted, and in places 52 inches thick. So it was built for strength. It was braced right throughout. It was a probably, you know, probably one of the strongest wooden ships ever built. And again, when we talk about Antarctica, wooden ships had their advantage because there was slight flex in wooden ships um, versus steel ships, which if we think of the Titanic or anything like that, they sort of get can opened. It's like a can opener if they, if they hit an iceberg. I suppose a few interesting things. The, the Norwegians had also built the Fram. The Fram built for Nansen and then used by a Munsden on his polar trip. Um, and the best way, the, the Fram was built in sort of a bowl shape, um, like an egg, or as someone I think really well described it, it was more like a cooperage job. It was more like a barrel. So the more... You know, it was the more stress that was put on it from the outside, uh, the stronger it became. Um, and it had a circular, smooth hull. So when ice froze, it tended to lift the, the Fram. If you look at Endurance, Endurance was built for the Arctic. And I think, again, in, in researching your talk, there's possibly a difference here because 
there's no landmass in the Arctic. So, well, obviously, while there's vast fields of ice, they're all moving all the time. Whereas endurance was pinched between ice, which was backed up against the land. So there were huge pressures put on it. And, you know, when you look at photographs, the sides of it are quite straight. So in other words, the squeezing pressure on it, as opposed to Fram, which was circular, uh, endurance would tend to compress. It was very strong, so it was able to stand a lot of compression. It was also sort of built with the iron sheeted bow to crash through ice and break it, as opposed to rise up on top of it. Another interesting piece on endurance is it was built for hunting trips. It was built as an Arctic polar bear hunting type, hunting polar bear, you know, Arctic life type type boat. Um, the, the ones who were behind it couldn't couldn't finance it then, so Shackleton bought it at a discount. It it didn't have Fram's rudder. I think there's another interesting part in, in just looking at this. Fram's rudder and propeller could be raised up, could be lifted up on board. So the, the things that stuck out of the hull of Fram, the propeller and rudder, could be raised up if it was freezing into ice. Whereas endurance didn't have that. And when you when you look at what happened in endurance, the, the sort of the stern and the rudder were ripped off it. The propeller was damaged uh, with ice previously in trying to run the engines. Mm. Um, and I think, so it was refitted from a sort of a tourist ship to turn it into um, an expedition ship. It was renamed, its original name was Polaris. And again, if, if your readers look at photographs, they'll see the star was still left on the stern. And of course, that was the Polaris, which is the North Star. Uh, Shackleton renamed it to Endurance after the family motto, Fortitudine Vincimus, by endurance we conquer. Um, again, it's unlucky to rename a ship. Maybe that's where he went wrong. I don't know. Uh, and one other piece that maybe your listeners will be interested in, it was the first exploration ship that was insured. So Lloyd's actually insured endurance. Um, uh, I, previously, they hadn't done anything going south of the... Um, the Antarctic Circle, and I think probably north of the Arctic Circle, you know, wasn't insured from, from that point on. Uh, otherwise, I could go into as much detail on the technicalities of the ship or can go into more, but I think that they're the, you know, a really strong wooden ship, uh, probably some weak points, but not maybe known at the time or not considered at the time in terms of, and it's me, me sort of surmising, it was built for Arctic ice conditions where the ice is always moving and there's no land mass to bank up against. And probably what got endurance was the, the huge pressure as the ice was butted up against land and it just was piling up on top of the ship. Can you tell us a bit about the crew? There were a lot of talented men from carpenters to navigators to musicians to cooks. How did they depend on each other and how did Shackleton manage to keep their optimism and hope alive? What was the specific vision he cast in order to keep the crew working together to survive each day. So yes, his crew was 27 crew, you know, a mixture of from sort of rough and tough sailors to very expert, you know, and advanced and leading uh, scientists, you know, um, geographers, meteorologists, phys um, the physicians, the doctors, of course, as well, McElroy uh, and Macklin. There was, you know, probably his, his selection methods were very unconventional as we we would say nowadays i mean he fairly well you know let me take frank worsley who was just you know a new zealander um well experienced seaman sea captain um, and a just incredible navigator and um, he 
was in London between sort of postings on ships. He saw the ad um, for Shacklin's, the advert for Shacklin's expedition. Um, and his story was he dreamed that night of navigating a ship down Burlington Street in London and dodging icebergs. And he took this as a premonition. This is where he should go. So he headed down to the uh, Shackleton's office, met Shackleton, a few minutes conversation, Shackleton appoints him a skipper of endurance. Um, Leonard Hussey, yeah, Leonard Hussey, who was, um, I think it was a, you know, his posting was a, a you know, a ge geologist or, or a geographer. Um, he turned out he was a medic later in life, but he had been on various expeditions to uh, Africa. Um, but he was just sort of a young guy after sort of his fortune uh, into Shackleton. Shackleton thought he looked funny. So he, he hired him there and then. Uh, so I think Shackleton had a, and I think he had an instinctive way of assessing you and could do it very quickly. I think it was instinct. It's, it's, it's more than chance because to get 27 people who could live together and by and large pull together over these extreme circumstances. And as I say, if you look at Shacklin's track record, he always seemed to pick people who could do the job. I think his methods were also important. So I think his instincts were huge. His methods were huge in that he enabled people to do their bit. Back to the stowaway. He, he was on the stowaway's case about developing him himself. He looked after the stowaway. Tom Crean, another, you know, Irish, as it happened, sailor character. After the expedition, he was on Tom Crean's case. Go and do your exams, Tom. You're as good as anyone. Let me know when your exam comes up. I'll see if I can get someone to help you. So, and you know, Shackton was the leader of the expedition. Tom Crean was a rough, tough, uh, naval, naval seaman. Um, but Shackleton, his, his expeditions were classless. I think another interesting piece is you had the, the Royal Navy or any Navy has to work on a command and control structure. And then you had Shackleton, who was never a, a military person. He was a merchant seaman who had done his apprenticeship. Um, had He wasn't part of you know, a particular class or caste. Um, he really relied on his wits and his abilities. And he operated that way. So he was, he related to everyone on his crew. Um, so they worked as a team. He built that team. Uh, again, there's a famous photograph, if, if your readers look through, of scrubbing the floor on endurance, on the wardroom on endurance. And there's Alf Cheatham. There's, uh, I think, James Wordy. So you've got, you know, a physicist and a sailor. Um, Shackleton had a great line. He wanted the ABs working with the BAs. So he wanted the able-bodied seamen working with the BAs from Cambridge and Oxford, the great universities. Um, and he also said, you know, when at sea, the scientists and the doctors and the physicists can learn how to sail a ship from the sailors. And when we were on land, the sailors can participate in the experiments and the scientific work. So it was all about teamwork and it was all about development. And then there was lots of nuances uh, in there. As I say, you know, he almost had a formal character. Shackleton could command respect. He could issue a command and people did it. People came back on expedition after expedition. I mean, you know, Frank Wilde had been with him on Nimrod. Frank Wilde was back on Endurance. Uh, and others who, who went on the next expedition, the quest after Endurance, lots of them turned up on his next expedition. So he had something that they trusted. 
I think he delivered to that. He took it seriously and delivered to the trust that was put in him. Um, but he also, you know, he could, so he could issue a command, he could organize something, he could allocate the jobs. And then later that evening, you could be standing on watch and maybe you're thinking, God, it's freezing tonight, I'm out here, but it's your turn to do it. And next thing, Shackleton comes up to you with a cigarette, asks you how your, your family are, you know, or how much, you know, how many in your family, how many children, what, what do you think they're going to become? And so there was just, you know, he, he there was just formal and informal trust, all the really good values and qualities. And also, he was going to get you. He, if he said he was going to do something, he was going to do it. And uh, he was going to be fair with everyone's decisions where they needed to involve people, um, where, you know, he still took responsibility, made a decision. He didn't wait all the time for a consensus, but he knew how people operated. And the sort of decisions were acceptable by the majority in, in all cases, you know. So there's just a huge amount there in how he kept them all together and how they, again, people will, I think it's a good line, good leaders need good followers. And following in this case wasn't a case of just doing what you were told. Following was uh, Frank Worsley, like as the James Caird departed Elephant Island, Worsley records that Shackleton said to him, you're sailing the boat, Frank. Uh, I know very little about sailing small boats. But if you look right through, he supported Frank Worsley. Shackleton made the decisions. He was there as well. He didn't overrule Frank Worsley. He took Worsley's advice when necessary. He took Harry McNish to Carpenter's advice when necessary. So he empowered people to do what they were good at. Can you tell us more about how these men survived? How were they able to keep all 28 men fed and hydrated? How did they stay warm? And what did they do to pass the time? Physically, they took all the supplies they could off the ship. And in fact, that meant revisiting the ship on one or two occasions, even to the extent of cutting holes through the lower decks where the wood was one foot, one foot thick in some places. They cut holes and with grapple hooks or with floating up from the, the flooded hold, they retrieved what they could. They had plentiful supplies uh, in terms of food. Uh, they had their sledging rations, which had been designed for the party which was going to cross Antarctica. And again, they weren't any ordinary sledging rations. Shackleton was a really interesting character in that. I think nowadays we'd say he was into new technologies. Um, he wasn't afraid. And there's an interesting contrast between him and the Munston, uh, the Norwegian explorer. And by the way, they were they regarded each other hugely and, and gone on very well. And Munston learned how the Eskimo lived in the northern latitudes and applied those learnings to, to in, in a lot of cases, to his southern journey. Shackleton was more innovative, I think. Uh, he went with new technology, so they didn't bring furs, fur clothing. They had, you know, gabardine and new materials that had been developed. And again, this was a very rich time in, in Britain, Britain being the huge empire at the zenith of, it, of, its, of its empire size. They were developing new technologies all the time, you know. And in terms of food supplies, he had uh, enrolled a, a man called Wilfred Beveridge, who was his name, and he was the, the army uh, nutritionalist, if you want to. Uh, hygiene, I think he's a hygienist, but that sort of overlapped into um, food supplies for the soldiers in the British army. Um, and, you know, he's, he came to much more prominence during World War I, 
Um, but he compounded and, and devised special foods to give the best nutrition, um, as was understood at the time. So they had lots of good supplies. They also had um, a lot of games. So they were able to shoot seals, penguins. They always looked at seals, penguins. Seals and penguins were, were so important on there. A, the fresh meat uh, contained enough um, uh, to counteract to, to the vitamins. There was enough vitamin C there, so scurvy wasn't, wasn't an issue. Um, secondly, they were plentiful. They got the blubber from them. The blubber was used for cooking and heating and lighting. Um, there was loads of water, obviously. You're, you're sitting on floating ice, so no problem with that. And, and just maybe to sort of come around to the whole thing, um, there are accounts where, you know, you would imagine living on this floating ice, it must be miserable. There's accounts of a group of six or seven going off to drag back a seal that they had shot and coming back and seeing the tents lit up, hearing music and people singing and, you know, plenty of food and plenty of liquid, plenty of water. And, and so actually you came back to something that wasn't that hard, even relatively, it wasn't that hard, even though it was a very harsh environment. I think the, the other essentials to survival, so yeah, I mean, a few little pieces. So again, there's the interesting story on the sleeping bags. Um, when the ship, when they realized they were going to abandon the ship, the ship was gone. It wasn't going to get them home. Uh, and they took their sleeping bags off it. The sailors' sleeping bags were woolen sleeping bags because they were going to be on board the ship. The ship was going to drop the party on the continent and come back home. The party, this the polar party, transantarctic party had heavier um, reindeer sleeping bags, reindeer skin sleeping bags. Maybe that is one place where they took the, the technology that the, um, the, the Eskimo or that used. So they had these reindeer uh, sleeping bags. So they had a draw for who got what sleeping bag and Shackleton rigged that draw that the officers ended up with the woolen sleeping bags and the men ended up with the animal sleeping bags. Mm. Um, so very aware that you know, and just because, you know, everyone was going to be treated, in this case, not even equally, but in a biased way towards the ones who would be at a disadvantage. Um, he, uh, and I think as well as the physical pieces, they kept the dogs, it was really interesting, the dogs, they kept them alive as long as possible. Yes, they ate them in the end. Um, they, but the dogs played a really important role, it, just in terms of what dogs do. Um, they were, you know, objects of affection, if you know what I mean. And they they sort of, they had great fun with the dogs and they adopted dogs in, in groups themselves. And they, you know, the, the dogs were really important for that other part of us that needs to be kept kept going and kept alive outside of the, you know, it's, <laughs> sorry, there, there's sort of famous stories from um, World War II from some of the, the I think it's um, Victor Frankl, you know, he who has a, he who has a, a will will find a way. And again, I think that's the piece that Shackleton put on top of the physical requirements. When they were restricted, they were able to bring two pounds weight of personal supplies. When they were living on the ice, they had to be able to move quickly. Um, he encouraged them to bring letters from home, photographs from home. Uh, he constantly reinforced that message that we're going home. Mm. Um, and so that other whole piece about 
and he constantly created options. I think that is the other piece that we come up to later, one of his characteristics. Okay, so you've lost your ship. You have 27 people. No one's going to come looking for you. What do you do? Shackleton kept creating options. And when an option ran out, when they got to this bleak elephant island after a horrendous boat journey, the next thing was six of us are going to go to, uh, to South Georgia, um, to the whaling station, and we'll organise a rescue from there. Having tried three times to rescue him, he still tried a fourth, and he was going to try a fifth and a sixth and a seventh until he got back. So he kept creating options. And, you know, you can imagine maybe survival there when people are as a unit and you've got this leader who, who is upbeat and who is delivering um, and who isn't reckless, who's, who's making calculated decisions just when they need to be made. Um, and he's, you know, he's got the Frank Wiles by his side. He's got the really good characters he's relating to you. You know, maybe the whole physical piece becomes less important. And now, if you can believe, this guy is going to get us home. And he does. Mm. So I hope that that's given some idea of, you know, I mean, when they were on Elephant Island, I think it's worth we're talking about, the 22 on Elephant Island. Um, each morning, Frank Wilde would get them up, roll up your sleeping bags, get your kit together, the boss could come back today. Um, so, the, you know, Frank Wilde echoed the Shackleton message of it's, it's only a matter, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. What was the overall mental state throughout the 500-day ordeal? Did some of the men remain in despondency the entire time? Were there some who stayed in good spirits? Or were there ups and downs for all the men? Yeah, I think when you, again, when you read the accounts, um, and again, as, as Alexandra Shackleton, Ernest Shackleton's granddaughter, would say, she comes to open our autumn event, our autumn school event each each um, October. Um, you know, she has a good line that, you know, the, the diaries that were written, the accounts that were written, that they wrote about the facts, not their feelings. But but actually, if you read between the lines, and, and every now and then Shackleton um, or Worsley or some of the personal diaries, you can see that, no, it wasn't always... I think the piece was nobody, they, they, you know, there was always, when there was somebody down, there was always two others who were up. So the optimism carried it through. Shackleton himself, soon after they moved onto the ice, and, and again, you can see this in his own account, uh, he, he sort of disappeared into his tent for a day or two. And he was feeling quite, he was stressed and quite sort of, you know, overwhelmed maybe but he emerged out of it having decided that uh, as he said himself when your target goes to ground you know I think it's a hunting metaphor when your target goes to ground it's up to you to find a new one and I think he, he had that turning point resolve of um, this is what I'm a leader a leader is supposed to lead I'm taking responsibility for these characters and I'm, I'm going to get them home. And I think, again, further on down, we make it a chance. I mean, I think he himself had, had, you know, I think he was quite spiritual himself. I think he was a romantic himself. We'll, we'll talk about this later. But he had supports that were outside of what you physically saw. Um, and, and then, so, but definitely, I mean, one of his concerns in getting back to rescue them was would they all be alive and would they all be sane? You know, would they all be mentally there? There was there was cases, but but again, you had Charles Green, the cook. Charles Green turned up every day 
to get the the, the sort of the um, sort of barbecue, I suppose, that they had rigged up from bits of insurance, get it going, someone else to get the, you know, everyone was busy, everyone was occupied. And as I say, that, that group returning from the ceiling trip, if you were an external looking in on this, you wouldn't say here's here's a group of people at the at the end of their tether. You know, remember he took the banjo. He took the banjo from the wreck of endurance, uh, having restricted them all as to the, the weight they could carry. Uh, he took the banjo, he gave it to Leonard Hussey, and he said, You're going to need this. It's vital mental medicine for the months ahead. And I think that shows what I've been trying to say is that he dealt with the physical pieces, the heat and the light and the, the food, but he was also aware of what these people needed mentally. And this all occurred right in the middle of World War I. Did everyone back home assume the crew had perished, or was there any shred of hope among family or the public that some of them might be alive even after a year had passed? Yeah, it's inter- that's a really interesting question. These are times that you have to frame the time in, in what it was, where if you were a sailor, a merchant seaman, Shackleton as a merchant seaman could go for a six-month round-the-world voyage, if you know what I mean. That was his work. That was expected. He would be back home for a month, and then he would go again. So, you know, think of the ones in World War One, And again, that was, you know, they, they dis- people went to, to Flanders. They, they ran at machine guns. Um, so life and death and expectations were, were very different. Um, I think between the war and, uh, you know, really the, the concern about what might have happened Shackleton, uh, Lady Shackleton, Emily, his wife, and some of her other, um, some of the sponsors, supported by some of the sponsors and, and, and others, raised it in Parliament around, and actually I can almost nearly date it, um, around May, June 1916. So that was, you know, a year and a half after the expedition had left uh, the, the, um, the whaling stations in South Georgia. Uh, Lady Shackleton was raising the, the requesting that some sort of a search be organized uh, in case they had got into trouble because obviously they hadn't appeared. The Aurora at this stage, the, the ship on the other side had had cut loose and, and drifted back to New Zealand. Uh, it wasn't known had they had they crossed Antarctica. It just wasn't known what had happened to them at all. So she was raising um, a call for a search. And the reason I can date it so well is uh, after rescue attempt number one in, in, a, in a boat, a Norwegian whaling boat called the Southern Sutter, Sky, uh, that left from South Georgia um, very soon after Shackleton had reached the whaling station, within a few days, he had borrowed the ship, he'd got a Norwegian crew, they all volunteered, and they headed down to try and rescue the, the 22 on Elephant Island. But the, the ship couldn't get through. It met ice. They, they got to within sort of 40 or 50 miles of Elephant Island on this occasion, couldn't get there, turned back, but they came back to the Falkland Islands. Now, the great, the, the interesting piece about that is uh, the Falkland Islands had a telegraph station the, the British Empire had a network of telegraph stations. So Shackleton actually incognito, because he had the press rights had been sold to the Daily, Daily Chronicle in, in London, a newspaper, to help finance the whole expedition. So incognito, he went to shore to the telegraph station and telegraphed back to London with an account of his expedition. 
it's fascinating. I think it was printed in on the Daily Chronicle probably around the 1st of June, 1916. Um, the Battle of Jutland, the big naval battle, was knocked off the front pages uh, of the newspapers because of Shackleton's, this telegraph from this expedition that no one knew what had happened. But, and I, I know because on the same day in the paper, there's an account of the parliamentary committee meeting to consider a rescue expedition for Ernest Shackleton. And again, if any of your readers can get onto the UK Channel 4, which did a, a really good docudrama with an actor called Kenneth Branagh um, as Shackleton um, on, um, on the endurance expedition, on this particular expedition, you'll see that moment where Lady Shackleton is, comes home, the telephone rings, she comes home from the parliamentary meeting and the telephone rings in the house, and one of the old telephones, and she picks it up. And here's someone to tell her they've got to telegraph from the Falkland Islands that he's alive. So I could almost date that exactly. And that's really the first record that I know of, of anything formal, any action being taken to try and, you know, you know, to, to materialize concern about what had happened on the expedition and maybe to go and look for a rescue. The fact that all 28 men survived was unbelievable. What was the public's reaction at the time when they learned that every last man had survived? Were they in total shock? They should have been. And I think they were. And I mean, I think if you look at the paper, they ran it as a headline when there were, you know, 1916 was well into World War One. Yeah, as I said, Jutland, I think there was some action in Verdun, some of those big battlefields on, on, on the continent. Um, but they ran it as the headline. Uh, I know in the Irish papers, it's funny, a day later, it appeared in, in as, as a sort of a, um, not, a, not a front page headline, but a, a major article uh, in, in an Irish paper, you know, um, about Shackleton. Um, so it definitely was, it was um, an amazing uh, event. It made the headlines, but I would say, you know, the war, the privations, people, you know, family being conscripted, drawn up, going, the, the postcard coming back saying, regret to inform you that such and such didn't make it. I think it quickly got washed over and mm. receded, it receded really. There was there was bigger things going on in people's lives. Yeah. Shackleton's methods are totally different in terms of motivating and achieving. Uh, you know, we talk about Shackleton now. He actually never achieved an objective around his expedition, mm. but we see that he had successes. And in a way, I think Scott's glorious defeat and, you know, Scott, that, that epic death on the way back from the South Pole, having been preempted by a Munsden, I think it appealed more to the, the mindset at the time than someone who didn't achieve what he set out to do, who motivated and had the soft skills. Maybe he had the soft skills as well as the hard skills, but he got everyone back home. And it was sort of a, so what? You, you know, uh, uh, there were people fighting for our empire in the trenches. Um, and, and I really think they didn't, they didn't match up. So I, you know, he definitely, I don't think it was appreciated. I think we appreciated more now what he did than, than at the time. Do you think the entire crew would have survived under different leadership other than that of Ernest Shackleton, or do you think they would have perished? If we look to the ones who were on the expedition with him, I always think, look at the people who were there. Percy Blackborough, the stowaway, who jokingly, jokingly, Shackleton said, we're a hungry lot of ex explorers, we, and if we run out of food, we eat the last one aboard first. <laughs> and Blackborough, reading Shackleton perfectly, said, 
there's more meat on you than there is on me, sir. <laughs> and Shackleton grinned and said to Frank Wilde, sign him on the crew, but introduce him to the cook on the way, you know? So, so what is it? Percy, um, Percy Blackborough later in life, he, he returned to Wales. He was, I think Shackleton may have even helped him get a job as a sort of a harbour manager type, type role. But he, he, as I understand it, he gave one talk in his life, and that was to a local scout group. And he said, bar none, Shackleton was the greatest leader ever. So I think when you look at Raymond Priestley, wasn't Raymond Priestley the, the geologist, the physics person who was I mean, one of the people who set the Scott Polar Research Institute, uh, who established it in Cambridge. He had been with Shackleton on a Nimrod expedition, and he was with Scott, and he knew Munston. And his summary, which again, your, your listeners will be familiar with, um, and I won't get it word for word, but, um, you know, for, for bravery and gallantry, give me Scott. For efficiency and organisation, give me a Munsden. But if you're in a tight corner and all hope is gone, get down on your knees and pray for Shackleton. And, and I think he reflected, nobody ever contended that and said, that was sort of said at the time. If you look at the people that were with him, they thought he was essential to their survival. Um, looking outside, he was essential. Um, I mean, there's a question: How did he get them into the? How did he get them into that position in the first place? And Munsden possibly wouldn't have got them into that position in the first place. But, but again, if you look, and I think also the other piece about Shackleton is endurance wasn't wasn't a once-off. He, Captain Scott, sent him home from Discovery. And he had, he had met Emily, his wife. He was courting Emily before he went on Discovery in 1901. And Scott sent Shackleton home as an invalid and told him, you're not fit for work in these parts of the world, you know, in, in these cold latitudes. So that was, you know, that was his early, when he was trying to make a name for himself, trying to impress Emily, trying to establish himself as more than a merchant seaman. That's what he came back from. In 1909, January 1909, he was 97 miles from the South Pole, um, and he turned back. And when Emily asked him to, uh, to explain it, he said, I would prefer to be a live donkey than a dead lion. So I mm. just think when you put it all together, he, he was bigger than his expedition. He was, he sort of encompassed, he enclosed his crew, he respected them. He wanted the best for them, and he was going to make the best decisions. I'm not saying there were other leaders who haven't done that, but they're they're rare, I think. Um, so I think I certainly would have wanted to be. I would want to be with Shackleton <laughs> if I was if I was going on an if I was going on an airplane. I'd want to sit beside Shackleton. That's that's what I <laughs> have a nice long chat. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And no, I'm going to get to the end as well, no matter what happens. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. One night back in December 2014, while camping on the ice with Jonathan Shackleton in Antarctica, he told me a story that has always stayed with me and which I recorded in my journal. He said that while Ernest Shackleton was in South America doing propaganda work just after World War I, around 1919, Ernest was quoting the poet Robert Browning and someone who didn't recognize Ernest but acknowledged his uniform said, I've never known a soldier who had heard of Browning. Later, Ernest was quoting more poetry, and the same man asked, And who is that one by? A fellow named Shackleton, Ernest replied, to which the man responded, Oh, the explorer, I didn't know he was a poet too. To which Ernest concluded, 
Why the devil do you think he became an explorer? So my question for you, Kevin, is do you think it was poetry and romance and a thirst for adventure that drove Ernest in his quest of exploration? Or was it a desire for glory or scientific revelation? What do you think was at the core of Ernest Shackleton's motivations? Okay, I don't think it was glory because I think I don't think anyone after glory would say I'd rather be a live donkey than a dead lion. Okay. Um I think, you know, on Nimrod expedition when he um when he was looking for a base to, to, to set up his, when he was looking to set up his land base and Scott had told him you can't go to McMurdo Sound, um, he was prepared to shelve the objectives of the expedition. So, and as I say, he never delivered on an objective that he set out to do. Um, and I don't say that scathingly. I say he delivered on huge things, but not what he set out to do. Um, I don't think it was glory. Uh, in, in his accounts and talks of any expedition he always included his crew he'd always name check his crew he'd always if there was any of them there the the hundredth talk he gave in in the um the philharmonic hall in london he had all the crew who were about up on stage with him you know uh, so i don't think it was glory i think he was a mixture of he was again on the discovery expedition you know the accounts would be he was interested in everything he was a bundle of energy he ran the printing press um, that produced the, the South Polar Times. He took part in the scientific um, experiments, the measurements. He was interested in everything. But the romantic piece is very important. And again, maybe if I was to, to go on, on that, um, the obituary in his school magazine, in the Dulwich College magazine, uh, actually said uh, about him, said, we can't take a lot of responsibility for the achievements of Ernest Shackleton. So this is his school but it goes back to his family upbringing and the 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 way and that they they read poetry they were encouraged to read poetry and literature and the classics and in fact his father and mother one of the favorite games at the, the dinner table was the father would begin a quote and would point to one of them and say finish that uh, so they would finish the quote so shackleton um definitely literature poetry. Um, Browning, he was a huge fan of Robert Browning. He shared that with Emily, his wife. Um, and again, he would have a Browning or a Robert Service. Robert Service, the, 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 you know, the North Canadian sort of, um, you know, job lot poet. Um, he, he, he would have a quote from them to capture the moment. Sometime around January the 4th, um, uh, 1922, um, as the ship came into um, Gritviken in South Georgia, the quest, and he wrote something like, you know, it is almost, it is a poetic, I see a lone star hover gem-like on the horizon. You know, this brings, this place brings back such strong memories. I think for me, actually, if I was to say his ability to, to pull out Browning, for sudden the worst turns the best for the brave, the black minutes ended. You know, so you know, keep going, the black minute will end. Or for me, the, the real, mm -hmm. I don't know, the real sort of gut piece for me is um, in uh, his book South, having described the James Caird boat journey, the crossing of South Georgia, he talks about the third man. You may know T.S. Eliot in his epic poem, The Wasteland, picked that up and um, wrote some lines based on Shackleton's account of the third man. You know, mm -hmm. when I walk up the white road, um, um, 
you know, I count there are three, but there's only you and I together, or, or something like, yeah, who is the who is that figure gilded, wrapped in a mantle, gliding along? You know, mm-hmm. when I count it, there are there are only two, but but about the three. So there's there's that sort of um, there's there's that sort of you know mental um, ability to go outside himself. But but those lines from Robert Service and um, um, Robert Service's poem about you know. We have seen God in his splendors, heard the text that nature renders. We have reached the naked soul of man. I mean, I don't know, can you get? He was able to pull that out. Shagolin had these in his head. They meant something to him. And to me, that that really describes what it must have been like. Do you know anything about Shackleton's relationship to Freemasonry? I've always found it intriguing that so many of the explorers of his time were Freemasons, And I wonder how much Masonic philosophy influenced their quest for knowledge and their curiosity about the world. I remember back with Jonathan Shackleton um, at an event in the Masonic Hall in Dublin, and there there was a painting of a Shackleton there. So some members of the family were were Masons. Um, They were Quakers, as I say. Um, Originally, they changed to the established church, the Church of Ireland. His father father changed changed to that. But I, I think you can see those, and when I say... I don't mean to say Quakers are Masons, but those those um, humanistic, those development, those for the sake of the person, those values, I think, really underpinned him. I mean, he didn't accumulate lots of wealth. Um, he, you know, and definitely his, his focus with his crew, his part of the relationship was a genuine interest in those people and their development. But I did a little bit more looking around it, and it was interesting to find, and I hadn't been aware, that Frank Wilde, um, Dr. McElroy, uh, Scott, and Amundsen were all Masons. Fascinatingly, Louis um, Pardo, the, 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 the captain of the Yelcho, uh, the Chilean ship, which went over and beyond, Louis Pardo said to his father, I'm coming back with those explorers or I'm not coming back. Um, and, and really picked his crew, asked everyone to be aware of what they were putting themselves, the risks they were putting themselves to. He he was a he was a mason as well, and actually there was there was quite a few events in Valparaiso when the Shackleton came back with his crew. Um, you know the, the the lodge there and related lodges all sent messages of congratulations and hosted them and so on. So what struck me was he he became a mason in 1901, just months before he left on discovery with Scott. Hmm. And what what I found in looking around was. One of the main people to get Shackleton on that expedition, on the Discovery Expedition, was a man called Llewellyn Longstaff, who was a wealthy London financier. Shackleton had met his son when he was a merchant seaman and on a boat which was bringing troops to South Africa to the Boer War. He met Cedric Longstaff, who introduced him to his father Llewellyn, and Llewellyn was financing a large proportion of the Discovery Expedition. And Llewellyn Longstaff um, wrote the Kingston Masonic Manual in 1871. So just putting two and two together and either getting four or 22, I don't know. um, uh, I would say at that point, Shackleton was attracted to the Masons, maybe was encouraged to to join. Um, I don't want to say because I don't think he did things purely to further his chances. I mean, he stood for politics when he wasn't really a politician. 
but it, it was when he was trying to organize his Nimrod expedition, it opened doors to him and so on. So mm. I, I don't think he was manipulative like that, but I think he probably liked the values of the brotherhood. He certainly, you know, um, uh, I think it took him, it took him 11 years to move on to his second degree, which apparently was, was a long time. So mm. I, I can't say he was, he was away for a lot of the time, of course, you know, I can't say he was waking up every day and thinking, how can I be a better Mason? But I think he was living the values and they probably resonated within him. You've mentioned that you believe that Shackleton's qualities are relevant to many of the challenges faced in modern life, specifically the current pandemic. Can you share a little more with us about this, specifically his advice on the four ordered priorities, optimism, patience, idealism and courage? to deal with life's adversities. Yeah, sure. He, he wrote this. He wrote this before going on endurance. Um, it was republished after his death. So some people think this was something he wrote when he came back. But actually, he wrote before he went on endurance, the, the four qualities. And he put them in order. And I think it's quite interesting when you look at the order of it. And relates to what we spoke about previously, in many ways, about the soft skills, maybe. So he ordered them as optimism, patience, idealism, and courage. Now, for me, I'd certainly look at, you know, if I was someone asked me to go to Antarctica or whatever, or go and do something like that off the edge, you think, well, you need courage. But I, he, he thought that was fort in line. He thought you needed optimism first, hmm. which he was. He, he, he portrayed optimism. I mean, as I say, when your ship is gone, you're 27 looking at you, you say the ship and stores are gone, so we're going home. Uh, and and, and he, he kept creating options. And I think options are very important for optimism. You don't run out of hope because you come up against a blank wall. You, you keep finding this isn't the end. There's actually one way or there's two ways or there's many ways uh, around this. Um, patience, patience Camp uh, was named. He, he realized, in fact, his nickname on endurance was Old Cautious. It wasn't reckless. It was old cautious because he took decisions in a measured way. There was rarely recklessness. It was, you know, when when a group would go out on um, sledging, um, you know, if they weren't back, they were told, don't cross any open leads. Don't cross any breaks in the ice. You know, they were told not to risk things beyond, um, you know, not to be reckless, not, not to risk it. To, to take the reserved option before the, the reckless option. Um, so, you know, his, his patience, patience came true there. His idealism, it's interesting. It's interesting because I saw as well, um, when he was uh, organizing the rescue missions, when he was in um, uh, Punta Arenas in, in you know, the, the southern tip of South America, um, the local newspaper, he, he spoke about, he didn't want to go back on board endurance after they had abandoned it, he didn't want to go back because endurance was an ideal for him and she was, she was damaged. He wanted to, that was an ideal that had run its course. He wasn't, he didn't want to stick with it. Um, and I think that that, that whole um, piece of idealism is, is, it's just interesting. It's this idea of a vision further on um, that we can get to, you know, a, a good vision, a good vision for everyone, a sort of an, that ideal vision. So I, I think that that was, you know, it, it came true in him. And again, courage, of course. I mean, you can't, you can't just go and organize an expedition and bring people down without some, some measure of courage. But for me, it's, it's where it's the order he puts them in. In our own podcast, I think it was interesting because um, 
we had some frontline health workers here. Um, one, one, one lady who's a nurse and, and is quite into Shackleton. And she suggested, you know, kindness, kindness, and not empty kindness, but real kindness, the, the sort of the nod, the, the I acknowledge what you're doing and let me let me acknowledge that by giving you a cup of coffee or something. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working in a service station and you're obviously coming in after hard night working in, in a, you know, in a frontline role in COVID. So just take this. Um, not looking for anything back, real kindness. She felt we could add that in. And, you know, we thought about what would Shackleton think of that because we didn't want to disrupt his, his priorities. But actually, he ran kindness through it as well. It seemed to be, it was an assumed part of how he did it. Like he he looked after others' development without asking for anything back. Um, so, you know, you know, I'm not going to go beyond the qualities that Shackleton himself said were important, but I think he did portray them. He did think they were important. And he, I think the order in which he put them is quite interesting. And I think he would be happy that we had a kindness. You mentioned the podcast miniseries you were part of. It was called What Would Shackleton Do? It was created during the pandemic to shed light on how Shackleton faced adversity and how his approach is relevant to the challenges we have faced during this time. Can you tell our listeners about how the Shackleton podcast came about and where they can listen to it? Yeah, sure, sure. In fact, uh, um, an American lady from Boston, she's a, a history lecturer in one of our universities here in Dublin. We had her speak at the autumn school on um, on time. And Jonathan, you and I will be familiar with time and time zones in, in organizing this. And it's funny because we thought, oh yeah, that's, you know, we get people who are expert, interested in their subject. They're not maybe that interested in Shackleton, but, but something about it, she came back to me um, this time last year, actually, and said, you know, I think Shackleton has something to offer what people are, you know, encountering. She had this vision of, uh, you know, we're, we're, on, we're on a sort of, our, we're on a ship and it's, we have to look to ourselves to survive. And she felt um, from what she had picked up about Shackleton that he could be relevant to it. So then we got in touch with Jonathan, who's a, who's a cousin of, of Ernest, and Jonathan pointed us to the, the article that Ernest Shackleton had written with these four characteristics. Um, and then, as I say, we, we, we just did, uh, we, you know, inv involved a few people in getting it together and speaking. Really, they're short, about 20 minute talks on each of the topics and how Shackleton displayed them or how they, how they were, how they're visible in, in, um, in his expeditions. Um, but Jackie, the nurse, um, she's just, just one day, she said, you know, I think it was a particular event. She was coming after a night shift. People had died on it. There was family stuff, whatever. It was really tough. And she, she called into that um, station to get gas for her car. And, and the person behind the, the counter who she wouldn't, she would know her from going in there on her way back from work, obviously just picked up. This person has had a hard night and um, gave her a coffee and, uh, it was it was it was things like that. I think she also found the people she was working with. There were people being pushed to do more than they need to have do uh, on their in their medical roles, mm. and and actually it was everyone doing it and doing their best that really knit them together as a group. So she saw that as a sort of a kindness on an individual level to to go above. And beyond what was called on. We, we Juliana Edelman, the, the history lecturer, she sort of chaired each session and uh, we got various contributors. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's up on our Shackleton Museum website and it's up on various podcasts, iTunes and 
Spotify and, and those sort of streams as well, you know. Lastly, one question I like to ask all our guests at the end of each episode is if you have a book or film recommendation related to tonight's topic, something that our listeners can dive into beyond this episode. I know you mentioned to me that you're a fan of Jonathan Shackleton's book. But himself and John McKenna uh, wrote an Irishman in Antarctica. You'll, you'll, you'll still get it on. Um, in fact, I always, there's a few books and I always have a few extra copies because they're the sort of ones I want to give to people when, when, when they want to find out. An Irishman in Antarctica is a good story of the Shackleton family. And I, I think in a very readable, well-produced, really nicely produced book, tells you what you need to know about Ernest Shackleton and a bit more. Um, I think if I was to say as well, if, if you get a chance to, to look at the docudrama that I mentioned before, Channel 4, UK Channel 4, I think it's called Shackleton. Kenneth Branagh is the lead role as Shackleton. Cranage. That's his first name. He plays Frank Wilde. It's just really good. And it's it's very accurate historically. I'll also add that I highly recommend reading the classic book Endurance Shackleton's Incredible Voyage by Alfred Lansing. It's a must read for all exploration and survival enthusiasts. And in closing, Kevin, can you tell our listeners about the development project to help fund the new Shackleton Museum in Ireland? Well, we have a big development program uh, um, underway. If, if, if anyone wants to come forward to, to help us uh, achieve it, um, we would just love to hear from you. Um, we do it. We're a voluntary group. We, our council is, is supporting us and funding us, but not a complete funding. But this isn't, uh, I'm not looking for, if, if anyone wants it, that would be great. But we run the Autumn School event. Um, we're in its 21st year. We did it virtually. If you if you go on to shackletonmuseum.com, you can, sorry, you can see virtually Shackleton 2020, which was last year's event. Um, but we, we, we hope to get running that in person as soon as we can again. Um, and we produce a journal called the Nimrod Journal. It's, it's Nimrod called after his, his expedition ship. Um, and yes, I've written articles for that. And again, you can you can get them online. In fact, we we did our, our Nimrod journal last year. We put it up as PDF online that, that anyone can look at it. Um, if anyone wants to write an article for it, even better. And, and hopefully, hopefully, in in the fullness of time when it's all when travel is open again and all of that, we'd we just love to see people at the um, at our Shackleton Autumn School, which is the last weekend in October each year. To all you listeners, you can learn more about Kevin Kinney's work at the Shackleton Museum and Autumn School at www.shackletonmuseum.com. I also highly recommend checking out the podcast miniseries they created called What Would Shackleton Do? If you would like to donate to the development of the new Shackleton Museum, please get in touch with them through the museum website. Again, that's www.shackletonmuseum.com. And if any listeners would like to sponsor a particular display piece, that is an option they are currently offering. I can't wait to visit the museum. It's a huge contribution to the scholarship of exploration. Kevin, thank you for taking the time to be with us here at the roundtable tonight. It was wonderful to chat with you, and we wish you all the best in your endeavors of research and service to the Shackleton legacy. Jonathan, thanks a lot. Thank you for tuning in to tonight's episode. We'll see you next week, back here at The Explorer's Roundtable. The Explorer's Roundtable was created to provide a place for explorers to share their tales of discovery and adventure and engage with scholars in fireside discussions relevant to the science, history and literature of exploration. If you have a story worth telling, we invite you to share it with us at explorersroundtable.com.